America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Well, we were walking right on the edge of the road, right alongside the roadway, and um, he came over, and he, and he hit us. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well, Tim. Thank you. How are you on this fine day? I am doing pretty well. Um, this episode is a two-parter. It's an emotional two-parter. We speak with a man named John Palmer who recently lost his wife in a very tragic automobile incident. And I just want to say we're really happy to speak with John, and try to help with his mission. Absolutely. Uh, talk about an interview that I knew was going to be emotional going into it because this happened very recently, April 21st of 2020. So it's been 17 or 18 months, and you can tell that John counts the days since this has happened. Uh, I don't want to get into it too much in this intro, what happened to Katie, because he describes it. I also want to maybe give a little bit of a disclaimer that while it's not incredibly graphic, it's incredibly emotional. It's it's one of those ones that uh, still hasn't left me. I don't know about you, Tim, but every day I think about this and, and I, and I want to reach out to him and make sure he's doing okay. At the very least, it's something to explore in your personal life. Like think about your family, think about just what you do on a day-to-day basis and how fast something like this can just derail everything. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I agree. It's it's really hard not to think about this case and to think about John and Katie and their children when you see your own family. You know, it's definitely a, a story that will stick with uh, folks and they need help. They need the word to be spread about this case. There was a grand jury that was held in Grayson County, Texas, and uh, they declined to indict. And... I think the Palmers are looking for accountability in this county. When you go to their website, justiceforkatiepalmer.com, it's all one word. Uh, it says there, what do we want? And first line, we want justice. That's it. They want justice. They want the accountability and they just out of respect for Katie and for her family, for John, for their kids. Just hold some accountability, like you said. And check out justiceforkatiepalmer.com. You can get all their information there. And again, this is a two-part episode, so this will be part one. This will be broken up into two parts. Very emotional interview. I hope you enjoy it. Please share it if you can. That would really help. And you can go to the uh, Get Involved tab, and it says how you can help. Share Katie's story, like you said. Voice your opinion to Texas state officials. Sign the petition. Ask your favorite content creator. 
to cover Katie's story. So that's sort of our call out to our peers here in this uh, podcasting world. If you haven't covered Katie's story, please get in touch with John. You can contact him directly through the website or you could uh, email us as well and we can make the connection for you. And there's a link on that page as well, how to file a complaint against a state trooper to Texas Department of Safety Inspector General. So you can click on that link and you can file that complaint that is uh, voicing your opinion to the Texas state officials. And one more quick bit of news before we get to the interview. If anybody is in town in Worcester, in Wormtown, on Saturday, November 13th, the show Death by Incarceration, hosted by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken, that's a show that's on our Crawl Space Media Network, they will be performing live, live at the Brick Box Theater in Worcester, tickets are available via the link in the show notes. You can also check them out on their social media. They'll be posting about that with the link to the ticket sales. Their Twitter is DB Incarceration, so they will uh, have that link in their Twitter and on their Instagram. Again, that's Saturday, November 13th, with special guest Nikki Bell from the Lyft organization right there in the heart of Worcester, Massachusetts. Welcome to the podcast, John Palmer. John, how are you today? Doing great. I appreciate you guys meeting with me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, first, no, no real words to express our condolences and just our our thoughts. Like it, it, you've been through such an emotional time, and we truly appreciate you being here with us to talk about it and to talk about getting getting some deserved justice. Absolutely. And uh, if it wasn't for platforms like the one that you, you guys have, um, my, my voice and those that are fighting for justice, our collective voices wouldn't, wouldn't be heard. So thank you. Really do appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. I mean, we have this platform and sometimes on, uh, on our shows we'll deviate a bit and we'll have some fun with some episodes that you know, aren't so uh, justice focused or about people you know, missing persons or, or homicides that are that are that have gone long cold. But uh, we deviate from time to time. But we always try to come back to these stories um, because we know the power of the platform. We know that people will listen and people will spread the word. And if you need anything done, the listenership is very responsible in that sense. They'll they'll sign petitions. They'll they'll contribute to a GoFundMe. They'll try to talk to whoever can make some difference in in some uh, injustice. Outstanding. And uh, big shout out to Amanda Shirley, who connected us, who is uh, fighting for justice for her in her brother's case. It's amazing, always amazing to me how um, how families and advocates kind of connect behind the scenes and uh, say, talk to these people. And we, we really say that that is a great way to do it as well, because the more people that um, the more folks that you talk to, more podcasts or TV news appearances you appear on uh it just makes it easier i think for even bigger shows to cover the case it does and i hate to use this word exposure but i think it's a word that has to be used you know the more podcasts that we're on uh, i i feel like locally um especially with our district attorney it can't go on to be ignored the more exposure um that we bring and the more light that shed on, on this in, injustice, surely 
our elected officials here in Grayson County will have to pay attention. Absolutely. And this is something that happened to you pretty recently. We're talking uh, April 21st of last year of 2020. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll talk about the incident itself, but I really want to know about about Katie the person. Can, can you tell, Phil, tell us about her if, if, if you're able to? I absolutely can. She was compassionate and caring, and I really hate using the word was, but um, compassionate, caring, very intelligent. Uh, she, she taught science at the local middle school. Uh, she loved teaching. Um, when it came to biology, I can't tell you how many times we'd be sitting at home on a Saturday not doing anything, and uh, she would get us in the car. we go to um, Hagerman, which is a wildlife refuge, probably five, ten miles away from, from our house, and uh, we would be forced to go bird watching. <laughs> So uh, I don't know if you guys have kids, but trying to get kids that are, you know, um, seven to nine, nine to go bird watching was quite, quite a feat, <laughs> but uh, she was funny, um, very, and I've said this before, very family centric, uh, loved her mom and dad, talked to her mom every day, saw her mom every day and talked to her dad every day. Um she was, she, she, she was a good soul and she was my soulmate. And, uh, she was a science teacher. She was, she taught over at Scott middle school. <laughs> I'm going to tell, tell you a little, little bit of a long story behind that. Sorry. Please. Um, so when she got out of college, we, we went to the same college in Sherman, Texas, Austin college. And, uh, she got her degree in biology and I got my degree in economics. I graduated a year before she did, and um, she wanted to be a teacher. So um, that's what she was going to do when she got out. I decided to join the military um, about a year or two af after I got out. So she had just gotten her, her first teaching job, and I got deployed. Um, I was stationed in Mississippi, and then I was going to be deployed and so she had to stop teaching and lost her certificate and um, basically put her life on hold for four, four years um, when I was in the military. And then we had kids. Um, so she, she raised both Bella and Brandon. And then when they got to be old enough, uh, she started to substitute teach and then eventually went back into teaching. She went back and uh, had a long-term substitute job over at the high school and then went over to um, Scott Middle School, where she taught for four four years. Uh, I believe she was teacher of the year two or three times there, and uh, really connected with her students. She brought a STEM program there, and uh, took kids to robotics competitions, um, and loved it. I mean, that's what you know, there's, there's some, some people that are born, born to do certain things. And, um, man, she had just the best personality to be a teacher. The, the kids loved her and she, and she enjoyed it. So, um, sorry, uh, long answer to a, to a short question. Uh, yes, she, she did teach. She was a science teacher over at Scott middle school. No need to apologize. That's a, uh, it's a good story, and it's also a really good insight into the type of person uh, she was. Because I, I personally love the idea that you know you said that she gave four years of her life 
to you know to to accommodate your uh, your your military schedule and and uh, then you had kids but I don't really I don't really see it as you tell the story as someone giving part of their life it's sort of like the compromise you have in a in a healthy relationship sure. because then she goes back to teaching when she's able to so she understood all right well it's a give and take I'm gonna you know we're gonna do this now and then I'm going to do my thing later. And then you do your thing later, you know, and I just think it's it's a real testament to a, a strong relationship. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, and um, man, our 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 marriage was rock solid all the way till till the end. And um, you, <laughs> you, you, you can never be prepared for somebody um leaving this world the way that she did can't um it was so abrupt um obviously untimely you know she she wasn't sick or anything but um our marriage was on a real high high note and uh you know there 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 was covid going on and she was teaching from from home. Uh, she didn't have to. I don't believe she had to log in to uh, teach her students until like ten or ten thirty or eleven. So got to spend time with her in the morning. And um, I was finding ways to leave work early just to come home and spend time with her and the and the kids. And so um, you know we had a great marriage, and we were married just about fifteen years. And those 15 years um, probably were better than some people that, you know, were, were married 40. And I'm just, um, I'm blessed to have known her for the, the 20 years that I, that I did. Very blessed to have been married to um, a person like her for 15. It's uh, amazing to hear someone like yourself say that you were blessed to have known somebody for 20 years. I just, I find that amazing because you could fall into, and I'm sure there are times when it, it was super dark and you can fall into that. And I think going about it the right way, like you said, not looking at so much the tragedy of, of the loss, but the fact that you had the opportunity to know somebody for, for two decades, for most of your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, really don't think that, um, really don't think I had the option to think of it any other way. Um, you know, I've got two kids and it could have been really easy to, um, you know, kind of fall into a, to a hole, but, um, I've got a great family around me. Um, yeah, I, I can't, it, it's so, it's so difficult to, to like, have a conversation about something so raw, you know, and it's obviously super emotional and painful. Um, so whenever you need to take a break, like, Oh yeah, no, it's fine. Um, sorry. No, Um, don't apologize. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, uh, like I was, was saying, you know, it, it could have been real, real easy to, uh, go into a downward spiral, but, um, I've got a really strong family. Um, you wouldn't believe how strong your kids are. But, um, you know, my, my kids got 
got me through it. Um, Bella, <laughs> Bella's my, my, my daughter. And, um, you know, she was always the one to pretty much, it's not what she, she would tell me. There were certain times where I would tell her if something wasn't going her way that, um, you know, it's all right. You've, you've been through a lot, you know, just, just be happy with where you're at. And she told me numerous times that she wasn't going to use anything as an excuse, you know, for a 14, 15 year old uh, kid to say that that's pretty powerful. So if, if she's not going to go into a down, downward spiral, you know, as, as her father, you know, and, and as a parent, I can't, and my son, um, you know, has been there, there for me. He's very uh, emotionally in tune with what's going on. It was something else, you know, as a parent, you're supposed to be there for your kids, but it was something else when your kids are there for you at such a young age. But again, uh, I've got a real strong family and this community has been with us and has supported us. And, um, you know, it's just a testament to the kind of people that are here in Denison, Texas. Yeah, that's impressive. So your your kids uh, showed you some strength. Absolutely. And uh, your kids are teenagers. They are, yes, sir. Uh, Fifteen and twelve. Okay. And how have uh, have they done? Um. I I I think as well as you possibly could. Um, you know, again, um, that day they were asleep and, um, my mother-in-law had to come running in our house and tell them what was happening. So you could imagine just the initial shock of that, you know, you're asleep and you wake up to your grandmother telling you that both your parents have been hit and she doesn't know if they're alive or dead. Um, that's what my kids woke up to April 21st, 2020. Um, they are so strong. Um, <laughs> it's been 17 months. You would, you would think that I, I could get through a interview, but, uh, sorry. kids are kids are handling it um as well as anyone could um again just kind of falling back on the strength of our family um katie's family is from here um they're all from denison texas uh my mom um moved up here a while back from dallas and uh katie's dad uh lives in oklahoma just about 45 minutes away so um, very large family presence here. And, you know, they've just been, they've, they've been out, outstanding. And I know it's, you said it's been 17 months and it's only 17 months. I mean, it, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, worry about, about that. If, again, if you need to take a break or whatever, that's totally yeah. cool. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And, and if it is, I know it is painful for you to talk about, but can you tell us what you remember of that day? I remember everything about that day. 
So I had gotten up, I had started to work out um, in the backyard before I went, went to work. And the night before, uh, told Katie, we had gone to bed at about nine, you know, eight, eight, nine, and um, told her that I, that I was going to work out and I was going to get up and walk, walk in the morning also. And she said, okay, go ahead and wake me up and I'll go with you. And rolled my eyes. Um, she was not a morning person. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll wake you up. Went to the backyard, worked out, sent her a text message at about, I think I looked on my phone. It was actually like 716 and um, asked her if she wanted to go work out. Of course, got no response. So I went in and woke her up and she said, uh, no, I'm not going to go walk. And I, I, I guilt tripped her and said, come on, let's go. You know, you, you said that you wanted to go, let's go. And she got right up. Um, we went, went out the garage. I told my son, um, he was kind of stirring around and I told him that we were going to go walking and, Katie has never walked with me in the morning. This is the first time that she ever took a walk with me. And my son has gotten up with me before and gone running and walked, um, you know, up, up and down the street. Um, very thankful that he went back to bed. Um, so he went back to sleep and we live outside the city limits and we live on a really long road that goes about, half a mile and then it dead ends um so we would go walking down uh we would go west down glenwood and we normally would go walk there's a golf course bias um we would normally go walk on the golf course and um she saw it and there was some dew on on the ground the grass is a little high and she didn't want to get her legs wet because she was going to come back home and sleep for an hour or so. Uh, kids didn't have to log into class till like 10 or 11. And I think at, at that time, everybody was logging in, you know, for like 30, 45 minutes. The teacher was giving work and then, you know, she had, she had office hours. So she said, well, no, let's not go walk on the golf course. Let's just walk down uh, Glenwood, which is the road that we live on. And um, I'm going to show you where these kill deer are nesting. Um, again, big into biology. She studied ornithology in college and loved killdeer. So I said, okay. And those are birds that nest on, on the ground. So we walked all the way down um, to where there's a housing development on the north side of Glenwood and there's some undeveloped lots. And um, she was looking and we looked all over and she couldn't see any. And so uh, she said, let's go ahead and turn around. I said, well, let's, let's walk up a little bit more. She said, nah, I, I want to go ahead and turn back. All right. So we started to walk back and we got about three tenths of a mile from where we stopped to look at those kill deer. And um, we were walking alongside the road. And about that time, that's when uh, Corey Foster hit us with his F-250 from behind. Um, he was traveling from his house, which was just about where we were when we were looking on the opposite side of the road for those nesting birds. 
He traveled those three tenths of a mile, crossed over the roadway, hit us both. Uh, hit us so hard that he knocked us out of our shoes. Sent us approximately 70, 75 feet. And I'm, I'm not a small guy. And um, sent me, I've obviously never been hit that hard in my life. Katie and I were walking and <laughs> she would always walk a little bit to my right. And I don't know how, how many times that I would, uh, you know, as, as a man, you're taught that, you know, you always walk on the side of the road. I would always kind of tap her on the shoulder. And uh, <laughs> she was very assertive. And she was like, don't tell me what to do. You know, I'll, I'll walk here and I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Um, but we were walking right on the edge of the road, right alongside the roadway. And um, he came over and he, and he hit us. I knew pretty quick what had happened. It was such a shock. I don't remember feeling the initial impact of when he hit us. I just remember flying through the air. And still to this day, I don't know how we didn't hear him. I mean, he was in a, a 6,000-pound truck. And I, I don't know how we didn't hear it. That's the one thing that I keep on going back to and uh, you, you always try to try to come up with some, some sort of reason of why, why things happened. And I, I can't for the life of me understand how we didn't hear that, that truck. Um, I, I could hear that truck now with the truck that he, he drives. Uh, I can hear it quarter mile away before he turns on to, to our street. And Katie would be in our bedroom and I would be in the living room and I swear I would have the TV on like five and she would text me to turn down the TV. So we did not hear it at all. Um, he hit us. I was going through, through the air and I remember thinking that we got hit. I could see his truck out of the corner of my eye as I was going through the air. And it's almost like we were going the same speed. Um, I hit the ground and I rolled and got up and started yelling what, what happened. At that point, I remember Corey was out of his truck and had told me um, something along the lines of, I'm sorry, John. I didn't know it was y'all. I was trying to clean my windshield. Those, those were his words. Those were the two sentences. And that's when I saw Katie. Um, she was, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 feet away from me. I, I got hit more towards the golf course and she got hit into the golf course, but more of at a, at a flat, flat line right by a tree. And she was leaned up on her left elbow and um, she was looking over me and she let out this moan that was, that had a lot of pain in it. And at that point, um, 
I felt I was trying to get up to go walk over to her and I, and I couldn't. It felt like there was a ratchet strap around my, my midsection and it was getting tightened. I tried to get up. I couldn't. I crawled over to her and I laid her down on her back and I remember telling her it was going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. I was, I had been yelling for somebody to call, call the police. At that point, uh, one of our neighbors had stopped. She had gotten out and she sat right by the top of Katie's head. And um, I've never met this lady before and never even looked up at her. Um, I, I never saw this lady's face until I met her on scene, probably two months later with the district attorney. Um, I, I never even looked up and saw this lady's face. I just remember hearing her voice and um, she was telling Katie was going to be fine. Also, I um, noticed that Katie wasn't breathing and I was begging for her to breathe, begging for her to breathe. And then she finally, finally started to breathe. And there was short breaths, 10 to 15 seconds in between each breath, like a really like, like quick labored breath. And I thought to myself, maybe we're going to be okay. Um, then I looked at her eyes and um, her eyes were fixed and they were staring straight up. She wasn't blinking at all. Beg for her to blink, beg, beg for her to blink. And man, I was trying to close her eyes. I see if she would open it back up, but her eyes were fixed, staring straight up. And um, I think she was, I think she was already gone. I think that was her body just trying to hold, hold on. Um, I was told by a family member that somebody at the trauma center that Katie went to said that um, with the impact with the truck and the way it snapped her head back that at um, when her head hit the hood, which there is a massive dent. I don't know if you guys have seen the pictures of the truck, but there is a massive dent on the driver's side of, of the hood and that's where her head hit. So her body folded all the way back on the truck her head hit and then when she, she was projected forward, they said with the, with the amount of swelling that her brain did, um, that her brain brainstem snapped. And I believe that when she made that moan that I talked about, I believe that, that that was her soul leaving her body. And I believe that her body was just going through the process of shutting down. Um, the paramedics showed up. In my opinion, in a great amount of time. I mean, I, I believe they, they were there less than 10 minutes. I mean, seven minutes. They, they got there. They started to work on Katie. I remember hearing them say that um, they needed to get medical transport for, for her air. And um, I saw them working on her. Then they came over to me. They loaded me up. They put me into the back of an ambulance. And then um, just wanted to know how she was doing. Um, wanted to make sure that my kids were taken care of. And uh, the last time that I saw Katie that day was when she was getting put on, on a gurney and I was getting put in an ambulance. And then um, 
everything else is pretty much on that body camera footage that we've put on social media. And, uh, how are you doing? How was, uh, how are you doing physically at that time? And now at that time, um, I had four broken ribs and I had two fractured vertebrae. Um, and I was told I had some bruising on internal organs. Um, I was in the hospital, obviously that day, the next day, they said that they wanted to keep me a couple more days, but I, they said, you probably won't stay. And I said, you're 100% correct. Um, left the hospital to go be with my kids and, uh, to go say goodbye to her body. Um, but, um, now physically, um, I'm, I'm fine. Um, I mean, still have some ling- lingering pain in my, my back and my, my elbow, but, um, could have been a whole lot worse. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. Um, gone through therapy, uh, as, as much as I, I could, uh, my, my daughter still, still goes, um, I think that whole process will take a while. Um, I don't think that I'll ever get over it. I don't think any of us will ever get over it. Uh, We just got to get through it into a point to where um, when you start thinking about it, you know, um, it's real easy to let irrational thoughts take over. I just try to keep it as rational as possible and um, don't ask why, you know, there, I, I, I don't believe there, there was a reason why Katie was, was taken and I was left here. I believe that's all free will. We're just trying our best to get through it. So that's the best that we can, can do. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So by all accounts, the individual who hit you and Katie, Corey Foster, he was a repeat uh, offender, correct? He had a 30-year history of um, interactions with police, yes, Um, from unlawful carrying of a weapon to breaking into a building when he was younger to um, traffic violations as, as an adult. He had, from what I believe it looks to be at least two um, DUIs that were pled down to public intoxication. Um, I believe he had one DUI already. Uh, the other two public intoxes those were, um, I believe, those were DUIs that uh, just got pled, pled down, um, got sent to the DA's office. Uh, Corey had a good lawyer, and uh, rather than prosecute him, they went through a plea deal, and that's it. But no, he's had 30-year history of 
in infractions and you know speed uh, speeding reckless driving dui public intoxication uh has never been held accountable once never was he given a uh, field sobriety test at the scene he was given a field sobriety test approximately 50 minutes after he hit us and you said 50 like five zero five zero so 10 minutes short of an hour yes right he was given a field sobriety test. Um, he was given the horizontal gaze test. Um, couldn't see his eyes in the body camera. Um, trooper said that he passed that. He walked a line. Trooper said he passed that. Um, he held one foot up in the air. Um, didn't hold it for 30 seconds. Held it for, you know, 23, 24 seconds and was shaking horribly couldn't keep his balance, fell down on one side and started laughing, uh, said that it was his work boots. And, you know, that's why he couldn't keep, keep his balance. I, I want to make sure that you, you guys know through, through this whole ordeal that was, that was captured on, um, the body camera by Tarif Al-Khatib, the trooper that was the lead trooper that, that day. Not once did Corey Foster ask how Katie Palmer was was doing. Not 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 once. Uh, never showed any emotion other than laughing twice. After the field sobriety test, which the trooper said that he passed, he then gave him um, a PBT, a portable breathalyzer test, in which Corey blew a .06 50 minutes after he hit us. Which you, I, I would assume that any seasoned law enforcement officer would look at that and go, okay, it took me 30 minutes to get on scene, which there's no accountability to what Corey Foster is doing for those 30 minutes before um, uh, DPS got, got on scene. And then the trooper was on scene 20 minutes prior to um, giving him that portable breathalyzer test. So if you did the quick math, you would think that he would be uh, very close, if not over a 0 0.08, which is the um, limit in Texas. And I think at least four or five times um, on Therese's body camera footage, um, he mentioned the strong smell of alcohol, uh, said he could smell it coming from his breath. Um, Corey told Therese that he had stopped drinking last night, first at seven, then at eight, then at nine, and then he didn't know when he when he stopped, and he said he only had five drinks the day before, um, which is, I mean, anybody with common sense would go, "There's no way you're you're going to drink five drinks the night before and stop, you know, ten hours before you get into this incident, and still smell like alcohol." And then on one of the other body cameras. Everybody that was on that, that uh, I'll, I'll say this, Tarif Al-Khatib Al knew the type of person Corey Foster was in some body camera footage that we just got released to us three, four weeks ago. I believe that one of the other troopers, uh, David Taylor, probably meant to turn his body camera off and the officers had a lot of candid conversations and Tarif Al-Khatib was quoted as saying, as soon as I walked up to the scene and saw it was him, I was like, he's probably drunk. Um, they, they knew what type of guy Corey was. He had that reputation. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yes.
And you said that uh, his blood alcohol was 0.06? 0.06, 50 minutes after, yes. And the legal limit is 0.08. Okay. The legal limit for intoxication is a 0.08, correct. Yeah. What about obstruction of his windshield? He claimed he was uh, he couldn't see out of his windshield or he was cleaning it? What he told DPS, which, which is the Department of Public Safety, which is the de facto state police in, in Texas. And this was written in Tarif Al-Khatib's report, okay? Uh, he said that Foster told him that he couldn't see uh, when he left his driveway and that his windshield was foggy. So instead of putting the defroster on, he drove out of his driveway and traveled 0.3 miles blind and then said that the sun hit his windshield and not only was he blinded by the foggy windshield, but he was also blinded by the sun. That's a bullshit excuse. Sorry for the language, but that's just an excuse. The drive from his house, from, from his mailbox to where we were hit is 38 seconds, going 33 miles an hour, which is at the low end of what uh, the, the county hired a third party to reconstruct the wreck because DPS did not do it. DPS didn't even mark the scene at all. Nothing. So they didn't go take him to go get a blood test. They didn't interview any uh, potential witnesses that were on scene and they didn't mark the scene. Third party report said he could have possibly been traveling between 33 and 43 miles an hour. It's hard to determine that because again, there was, there was no, no, no markings. So they really had nothing to go off of other than we, we think Katie's body was here. We think John's body was here. And um, based upon some physical evidence that we saw um, on the like 15 pictures that they took, took of the site, which is crazy, just, just 15. And I'd say eight of those were of the truck. Um, they determined that he was going between 33 and 43 miles an hour. So I had somebody drive me in their truck and, and I filmed it. And I put that out on so, social media too. 38 seconds. 38 seconds driving blind, and then you cross over the roadway and hit two people smelling strongly of, of alcohol. And I also want to bring something else up. We got his phone records, okay? This has not been re released yet. Not only was he claiming that his windshield was obstructed by environmental factors, and he was blinded by environmental factors, um, the foggy windshield and, and the sun, which according to an independent third party, again, every driver has to deal with that, okay? Uh, stating environmental factors caused a wreck uh, when you had 38 seconds, just three-tenths of a mile of, of drive time. It's not an excuse. We got his cell phone records. He placed a call to a local number 31 seconds before calling 911. The timeline that we have in place that we've presented to the DA along with these phone records would indicate that Corey Foster was also manually distracted by dialing this number in engaging in the call seconds before he hit us. As he made that call, he obviously already couldn't see 
He was he made that call, drifted over to the other side of the road, engaged in the call, hit us, came to a rolling stop because there were no brake marks, and he came to such a casual stop that the uh, recorder inside the truck did not record his speed. He thought he hit a telephone pole, is what he told state police. He got out with his phone in his hand, saw what he did, made the statements to, to me. I'm sorry, John, I didn't know it was y'all. And I was trying to clear my, my windshield. I was yelling for somebody to call the police as I was crawling over to Katie. Corey looked down. He was already outside of his truck, had his phone in his hand, ended that call. And two seconds later, called 911. And we have a witness that drove up, the same witness that came down um, to, to come sit by Katie when I was when I had crawled over to Katie and stated that Corey was already on the phone uh, in the middle of the road when, when she got there. So the DA never requested his cell phone records at all. State police never looked at his phone for distracted driving. The DA told me twice that they would get his phone records. This was once before the grand jury. And of course they didn't have the, the phone records for, for the grand jury. Then one time, after the grand jury hearing, they said, we'll, we'll look at the phone records and see if there's anything else that we, we can get. Um, they never requested this. I sent them a Freedom of Information Act request just asking for any evidence that they did indeed request those phone records and they would not answer me. And they sent my request to the Texas Attorney General stating that what I was asking for was investigative materials that they could not release because Corey Foster was not indicted. I didn't ask for the phone records. I asked for evidence that they even um, requested them in the first place. Those phone records were handed over to the district attorney's office approximately six weeks ago.